You're listening to The Razor's Edge, an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor, trader, short seller, and deep dive researcher for the last two decades plus, and me, Daniel Schwartzman, who's worked in investing media the last decade while managing my own stocks. We break down investing themes or ideas and speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. Reach us on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. You can subscribe to Akram's The Razor's Edge newsletter at the-razors-edge.ghost.io. The link is in Akram's Twitter profile. Here's our disclosure. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We'll disclose any positions and any stocks discussed in the introduction to a given episode. Hey, it's been a while. For various reasons, we haven't produced a Razor's Edge episode in two months. Obviously, a lot has happened in those two months. The biggest story, of course, is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is somebody whose parents are from Kharkiv in Moscow. I miss appalled as anyone. And just before we start thinking of Ukrainians especially suffering from the attack and the war, and also any Russians against this war who are nevertheless suffering the consequences. Beyond that in the markets, there is a steepening of Fed rhetoric, where it seems that the question is not just whether or not we'll have a 50 basis point hike soon, but how many of them. And there were several market gyrations. On this episode of The Razor's Edge, we stick to our knitting. The fluctuations in the market landscape through the lens of COVID cliffs, of microeconomic spending, of sector rotations, and what's here to stay, what's rebounding, and what's fading. We focus on a different part of the market this time, talking primarily consumer goods in the wake of things like the restoration hardware call that stole headlines a couple weeks ago, and a piece Akram wrote that I'll link to in the show notes. And because it's our knitting and we couldn't avoid it, we also talk about Elon Musk's investment in Twitter. I should say we recorded this on Sunday afternoon before Twitter announced that Mr. Musk would not in the end become a board member, at least for now. But I think the general analysis and discussion holds up nevertheless. For positions, Akram is long Boeing, Booking, Micron, Juniper, Twitter, Roku, Zoom, and DocuSign. I am long booking. Okay, here we go. Akram, welcome back to the Razor's Edge. It's been a while. Yes, it has. Welcome back yourself. Since we, since we last spoke a couple months ago, a few things have happened. A war broke out, which is obviously a very serious topic that, with a lot of implications. We have. The Fed has, I think, more than when we last spoke, has really found religion on hiking rates, it seems. I mean, they've only done it once so far, but everybody's bracing for a 50 basis point hike for a lot more to come. Inflation is still persisting for various reasons. The market sold off a lot in the wake of Russia's attack on Ukraine. It then Sort of had a weird recovery rally through a lot of March and now feels 
to have receded a little bit. So it was still bouncing up and down. Yeah, we had that kind of, uh, what do you want to call it? Uh, I mean, we were in, in a group of stocks. We were drastically oversold probably by by the end of January. I mean, I, like, I'm a bit biased because that's when I covered shorts. But yeah, then things got a lot worse. And then, yeah, we had the, I mean, we had a crazy two weeks where everything went vertical, which I mean, I guess is what tends to happen when stock prices fall very fast and very far in a very short time period. Just as a consequence of natural reversion by the dip, what or what, like just sort of the feeling that that was a too radical. I don't, I don't even know if it's by the dip. I think it becomes seller exhaustion, and then like as soon as you kind of tip into that that land, like you know when the stock loses seventy percent in three months, right? Uh, as soon as any of that pressure abates, you know it becomes kind of like a coiled spring temporarily. It's just, I mean, it's really interesting when you don't own those names really, and you've been focusing kind of elsewhere and it kind of sets up for, you know, like this like kind of sharp rebound and you got to kind of go against uh, what you've been doing if you want, because that's where the performance all of a sudden is at. And it's like really tempting. (laughs) Yeah, because I, I was talking to Justin about this. You know, he'd held some juniper for a while, and then he's like, "I blew it out, and I rotated an Alaskan." <laughs> Genius move. I was like, "Yeah, uh, it is without question." <laughs> like if you you're sitting there willing to pull that trigger, you know, on a stock that was really flat through the chaos, and then you buy some Atlassian at you know two thirty, two forty, and you know it bounces to. 300. You could do it on that with just about any name, right? I mean, there's been, you know, Square got down into the 80s and then almost back to 150, but there's been, and that was like a two week range, right? You had like almost a 50% swing in Shopify and DocuSign, Zoom, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the oversold SaaS had pretty good bounces. I mean, I traded a little bit of it recently. I mean, I'm actually technically still holding some of these things. So Roku. Uh, yeah, it was very profitable. Now, essentially break even on these trades you put on. So you wrote about something recently, because I think it's, we spend a lot of time on that universe, the software or Roku sort of gets us into streaming You've you've written about Juniper a little bit. We could talk about that too. It's a little different. But the you wrote something about on your newsletter about the COVID cliff coming to consumers, which I thought was interesting. Cause I think we we've talked so much about the COVID cliff and dynamics in terms of the great digital acceleration or the great digital pull forward, whichever it's proving to be a little bit less clear which is which or maybe more clear that it's, it's funny, i'm actually re- reading a report well read a report stripe had like posted their like annual uh update they made it public i think that had something to do with what, what happened with fast and 
the fact they've been getting uh, some people have been giving them a lot of shit on Twitter competitors. But in there, there's like a thing on uh, on on, uh, on online spending, e-commerce, really, right? And like this, they link to an IMF report, which actually, if you get into it, it's kind of interesting because like they have a number. You know, I mean, everyone's always throwing around these. I think they threw around like global e-com penetration is twelve point three percent, i.e. It's early days. Right. <laughs> a lot know? more than 12% you can go. But it turns out, like, if you really, like, so when I see a number like that, so, and, and, like, we're going to get into this kind of whole thing with the consumer and furniture and everything else, uh, and gas and restaurants. And uh, when I see a number like that, I'm like, all right, like, you're taking this from an anonymized MasterCard data. Like, I, I really wanted to drill into it. So they had a link and it, like, this goes to this kind of like, you know, vast IMF study published on the topic. And that topic actually, like that report actually gets into the fact that a lot of this shift has proved to be, we hate this word, transitory, <laughs> right? So the report kind of takes this views like, the thesis was acceleration, but it's kind of looking transitory because it looks like we're reverting. Because, I mean, there's, there's a reason that I was interested in it. it, it take a Best Buy. Right, Best Buy during uh, 2020 got up to, and I mean, you think about it, the stores are essentially closed, and you know, there's curbside pickup and whatever. But it got up to about 47, 48 uh, percent of revenue coming from online sales. Right, so th that's not early days, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, that, that that's what that's what Best Buy looks like when you literally can't go to the store, right? Uh, or like very restricted, you know, for a significant time period. But still overall, you know, roughly it turned into a 50-50 split. 2021, you know, the sales shifted back. Uh, you're back to like, I'd say about 35%, 36% online. And if you think about 2021, you know, you had persistent COVID still, right? Uh, obviously, you know, less extreme than let's call it those first four or five months uh, of the pandemic. But like when you start looking at numbers like that and like they started breaking things, because I'm looking at it, I'm like, all right, let's back out. Like, you know, what is this? Like, wh what's the what's the mix shift look like when I strip out like a gas station and a restaurant and everything else? Like, what's the penetration? Like, what are we really truly trying to measure? Right. And to kind of get a sense of like, because I mean, this report essentially concludes with that, like that some areas have been, been a little bit more resilient, but like overall human behavior really reverted back. <laughs> it's uh, like, I mean, we have been in the cycle of buying stuff online without question for 20 years, right? I mean, it's been incrementally and growing and growing every year. And I mean, I, I've had this conversation with people. I mean, I don't know if you and I have got into it. It's like, you know, what is that smack ceiling for like when you think about this for social media and streaming and time spent online, you know, like outside of sleep, right? Like Reed Hastings old competition is, yeah, my competition is sleep. Uh, you get to this kind of point now where you're like, well, I mean, really your competition isn't exactly just sleep you know it's video games and he's acknowledged that as well but now like 
you know, half a dozen other companies uh, cracking out, you know, content. Uh, and you're all kind of like, like, that, like that, this whole TAM argument, right? That the, we focus on on so many things. Uh, it looks like COVID is kind of, it's kind of a ceiling for some of it, right? I mean, if anything, you know, 2021 is a step back from 2020, which is kind of natural. 2022 looks to be like more of the same, if not a little bit more. Well, there would be, I mean, the one nuance here, I guess, is that we're in that sort of snapback period. And in theory, you can settle for a little bit higher up than you were before. So you could, like, if it goes way too far to the e-commerce side of the scale in 2020, it then settles back. And then maybe people are so desperate to just go into a store now, but some of the habits will stick over the long term. That's sort of the yeah, it doesn't look like the habits are really sticking that much. I mean, I think there will be like some sort of balance, like again, like, so I mean, the, the, so thinking about consumer, right, there's been, it, it wasn't last week, it was the week before, right? And the week before had, you know, that whole slew of things that had the restoration hardware conference call, where he was just like the consumers, you know, has just taken a, you know, a Mike Tyson punch to the face, right, in terms of inflation. And that nobody alive today, uh, you know, well, I mean, people actually are, but nobody's, his argument is that no one's really lit, like from a management standpoint, lived through a, a high inflation environment. Uh, and then we had like, you know, this data on Best Buy traffic uh, that, that like, I don't know, it was UBS or someone, you know, it being down. But like we'd seen stuff already out of companies uh, talking about furniture sales and whatever being down. So it wasn't really a surprise when it got to him. Like I think he would he definitely sensationalized it a lot more. And considering how much stock he was selling to exercise his, you know, decade anniversary uh, success options on his huge uh, package that he got for uh, as RHCAO uh, for the you know success he's had. But you've also had Amazon uh, third-party sellers, you know, sharing their like February and March numbers pretty actively on Twitter, right? And I mean, these guys are posting stuff down like you know, mid twenties year over year, right? And that's there. Other channels are done even more for them if they're selling in in other areas. You had this Instacart down round. Then you had this like fast. I mean, essentially, we're going to raise 100 million to uh, companies that are shutting down <laughs> in a week. Uh, so, like, all this is kind of tied to this, uh, you know, online consumption, consumer behavior, right? Like, I mean, our age, not so much, but like, we can get it like that's consumer housing, uh, you know, inflation, uh, COVID comps, pie shift. Etc. Right. So you got a lot of things going on at the same time. You've got this kind of rebalancing. You know, I mean, like one of the crazy things about the pandemic, you know, from an economic data standpoint early on was like personal savings surged, right? And, you know, people were initially kind of surprised by that, but like with the approach that was going on uh, with the economy, and then you, you added stimulus onto it, and like people just kind of staying at home, uh, savings went up, right? And 
I mean, the the unemployment benefits and PPP and these things, you know, they filled that kind of income gap, right? So you weren't drawing down on savings. So personal savings, you were spending less. Uh, and that proved into, like we saw where that went from a consumption standpoint, like these, everything tied to the home, right? And homes related spending and online spending really benefited, right? So you have people remodeling their homes, you know, people are buying kitchen equipment, uh, puzzles and swimming pools and redoing the roof and lawn furniture and so on and so on. And I mean, that, that was kind of like, you know, the happy days of COVID. There's like a bunch of COVID winners not tied to tech, right? And we've discussed some of them. Uh, there was a whole, you know, summer of travel domestically, uh, the RV thesis, uh, things like, you know, everybody in furniture. And then like names that like you wouldn't have thought about being excited about, like they just had fantastic fucking <laughs> you know, 18 months, like, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods Apparel, uh, William Sonoma, obviously, furniture, kitchenware, and RH, right? I mean, that stock had a fantastic run, uh, you know, I mean, for, for all his gloom and doom uh, uh, warnings, right? Like he's guiding to like mid-single digits or whatever, I think it was 6 7% revenue growth. Uh, on the back of a year where, you know, operating income tr almost tripled, right? So, like, it was, let's just call it good times, right? Like, uh, I mean, there was a, like, there's a, like, just like Google doubled operating income and, you know, it was great to be Zoom for the first 12 months. Uh, there was a lot of companies that, you know, had a similar dynamic. And, uh, like that has like, I'd say you can call it stimulus that we're lapping and you can call it uh, the pie shift, the rebalancing, you know, like, which is just an ongoing process because you can't really say it's kind of like a hard 180 degrees, right? Like, I mean, last summer was like, people had started to, to be active again. Uh, but like, I mean, now it's really kind of normalized and you're seeing this kind of consumer spending hangover in areas that were big winners, right? And that's where you get into this whole, like, I, I mean, Amazon had, like, I don't remember if you, I, I, I think I shared it in the Slack, but, like, there's that YouTube video of uh, one of these Amazon employees in a fulfillment center in Austin, and he's just like, that's never been this slow ever in my life, <laughs> you know? He's like, we we added so many people, and there's, like, literally nothing for them to do. And like, they're strongly encouraging you to take, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, the leave. If you're, uh, if you're willing to, I mean, like these things all kind of, you know, crash together. And then at the same time that this is happening, right. You've had this kind of inflation burst. So the grocery stores, I mean, it's no surprise by the way, like what stocks have been doing well. Like if you're if you're sitting on Kroger and Costco and fertilizer companies and energy producers, right? Like that's been that's been the winner. So the area where like you kind of had seen 
let's call it uh, demand shift, right? As things kind of rebalanced, you also had inflation at the same time. So that's kind of like a, that's like an eat into the pie, right? So you're like shifting back, you're shifting back towards air travel and dining out uh, and, uh, you know, driving around and all that stuff is now more expensive, you know, per dollar, you're getting less than what you were getting at before COVID. So that takes even more out of the pie that, you know, had been a winner for the first half of COVID. Which has kind of created this kind of kind of crazy volatile environment, right? I mean, like, no surprise, by the way, a lot, a lot of these plays have come down. I think the e-commerce stuff, you know, still very rich because there really is kind of a legitimate debate about human behavior and and, and profitability. I also have been reading, I don't know if you've been following these like uh, uh, FBA consolidators, right? Like these... Uh, Fulfillment by Amazon types, you mean? Yeah, they've bought they've bought like tons of DTC brands. The big one is I think uh, Thrasio. Okay, but I mean they're just you know VC private equity backed, and they've been roll, rolling up DTC, and that's now like there's like a hundred of them, and that's now kind of got in this like you know red flag type of thing because they really are dependent when they roll these things up on, on pretty consistent uh, cash flow, right? So like you have a couple of DTC brands you pay up for and they fall off a cliff, it's a mess. And there's an argument that like they've been buying these from you know op- owner operators who are really nimble at what they've been doing and adapting and like that it actually doesn't fit well into uh, a roll-up strategy. Right, like it's like a you know having multi brands and 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 thinking that like you can get the synergies of of having like one brand manager, right? And it turns out these things are it, it's tough to do platform wise, right? Because like once you get to the platform level, really, it's like being like an Amazon. What what I'm trying what, to enter into this a little bit, what, what I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around or what I think about a lot with this stuff is so we talk about the, I mean, like I, I was just as you were talking, pulling up charts for a lot of these names just to, and also some news to sort of get where they're like how they're at least guiding for the year ahead, how they're thinking about what's going on. So like a Best Buy had a big jump, but is now almost flat with where it was before COVID. They're guiding, they had a record revenue last year and they're saying we're going to get back to above record basically in 2024. Um, so they're they're forecasting a bit of a pullback this year. Williams-Sonoma is probably up 2X from where it was and they're still projecting growth. RH is up about 50%. You mentioned that they're projecting growth. Target. I don't know what their guidance is, but they're also actually up about 2x, which. And so it's like and then I was I wrote an article this week about uh, Mohawk Industries, which is a flooring company. But, you know, you can probably bucket a lot of these housing related plays and they're basically flat. 
after a huge record year last year. And they, they've had, they have Russia exposure. They have other and Europe exposure with natural gas, like other specific things. But it's just interesting. Like one of the points you flagged and you're not the only one obviously who's flagged this. You, I think you cited Freitos and like demand seems to be really, that seems to be the cause for what you just explained with the fulfilled by Amazon slowdown or not the, the Amazon in, um, Austin fulfillment center slowdown. Trucking demand has gone down a lot, um, and I'm just yeah. There was a, there was a freight waves report also the day after uh, the day after the RH from a from a guy who's done really good stuff there, and you know he just kind of went through the, the the trucking rolling over like they can't get enough orders now. And that's kind of interesting because he's essentially predicting a freight recession. Which is just, it's sort of, I'm just like, and this is, I think, you know, this is, there's a, there's a macroeconomic argument about the impact of stimulus somewhere in here that I'm not making, but that I can hear as I say it. But like, essentially, it seems like you could argue that everything through the stimulus, through the fact that the financial and economic impact of the pandemic, at least on the publicly traded companies, was not as extreme as expected. It's just compressed so much into a now two to three year period that we're going to slingshot from brief recession to huge recovery to another recession as we normalize potentially to then back to normal. Like, it's sort of monkeyed with the system a little bit as compared to just allowing it to run you know i you could argue it would have been a much more severe course in some ways but would have been less aberrational i don't know it's just it, it, that, that's that's the unintended consequences of meddling right <laughs> right exactly right. exactly which again i'm not making them i i'm not so concerned with the macroeconomic argument now i'm just thinking like as you look as an investor as you sort of enter to these names new I think, like I'm feeling as I'm talking, that using the heuristic of where did it trade before the pandemic, where does it trade now, and what are its business results is probably actually more harmful than useful. Like you really do have to kind of somehow you have to take the context of the last two years, but you have to almost you really do have to figure out how to orient it on a go forward. Like okay, that doesn't really like this has been so weird that you can't really count on any sort of normal even reversion let alone persistence of what's happened yeah it, it, it's it's really looking at what like kind of normalized earnings power is for some of these companies again like it's and it's hard to look at some of these names that had such huge boosts and just like it's normal for them to have a hangover right that's without question and like i think the market already has with a lot of these names discounted that right I mean, RH, you know, it's had its big rally. It drops 50, 60%, whatever. Uh, William Sonoma, kind of similar. I mean, like Home Depot is probably down, what, like 30% year to date. And that had been just this monster stock throughout COVID. Uh, but, I mean, and you've seen what these companies have guided. Home Depot's kind of guided you, like, essentially a flat year, right? Uh, RH is kind of, you know, going the same. I think the question will, be, will become is, is that too optimistic? Are these numbers going to come down more? Right? I mean, paying 25 times earnings 
for something that's not going to grow earnings for the year, right? And that's after it's had the type of growth it's had. It's not exactly exciting, right? I mean, that's kind of the problem with a lot of these names. I mean, you can look at what Costco trades now. Everyone sits there and jokes about it. And then, you, you know, talking 40X. Uh, some of the, I mean, and, and, and those stocks are kind of, you know, they've got this kind of premium right now because they've been almost safety trades. Yeah. Yeah. I think for Costco, especially, yeah. Still at 600 a share. It's sort of the exception to this rule as far as being at 52 week highs. And I know they just posted solid numbers last week, but um, yeah, I guess that that's what's like, even setting aside the, the home depots or whatever they're trading still at 25 X. Like it's, I think what's interesting is to think, so target trades closer to like 16 or 17, I think. And then if you get further down, You've got names that are trading at what, like trading at the sort of low multiple that makes you raise an eyebrow because you know that something's not right there. Um, and I think that's where it's really interesting to try yeah, because to. Because it's like if you fell 25%, uh, like, like if, let's say you're an Amazon third party seller who like had like triple digit uh, growth for 18 months, then you drop 20% or 25% for a month or two. Uh, that's not a big deal. Okay. But like the question then becomes is, but when you're looking at something on a trailing earnings basis, right? Like the question then becomes is, well, what's the rest of the, like, are, are you going to give back all of COVID? <laughs> right. Like what's your normalized kind of sales level look like? I think that's when you look at, like, if you look at Dick's or Target or Williams-Sonoma or whatever, right? Like if, if these companies hit what, the, or even Home Depot, if things pan out as they've said, right? Like the stocks are okay. I mean, it's not, there's no reason to get worked up about the type of performance that they've had recently based on the fact that they're not growing and where, and, and where the company, like in Home Depot's case, for example, where the company is trading. But like, if this turns into, you know, these management teams are off by 10, 15% on, on, on the revenue for the year, right? They're just difficult. They become very difficult grind type of situations to own. Like this is what I've been thinking about for the next quarter, right? Like you got a lot of these consumer goods plays. Obviously, now with what with, with like you know with what RH guy it's moment and the freight waves and the, all the data points on on e-commerce sales and like these categories that are, are seeing you know money come out uh, that had had a huge influx. Do you, numbers are going to come down, right? Street's going to be, I mean, they're going to be taking estimates down. And like the question then becomes is, are these companies that in the next quarter or two beat these reduced expectations or do they miss them? Right. And like, it's kind of a hard thing to guess as of right now, like, you know, from, from a trajectory standpoint, because you can look at a lot of them and say, well, you know, like RH guiding to 7%, growth this year after the last two years right isn't exactly bearish like is does he end up proving way off on that right and then does and then does he blame it on uh does he blame it on the the macro which is essentially what he set himself up for with that that conference call right because when you're giving like seven percent top line guide after what like you've experienced over the last two years, 
Uh, and obviously their business is, is doing well, but and you, at the same time, you say this is the most uncertain environment I've ever seen. It's like, it's like you're hedging your bet. You don't want to give, I mean, you're basically saying, I don't really have the visibility beyond this point, but I'm going to go with X, Y, and Z. Yeah, but it's like, it's uh, the forty percent forty percent prediction, right? It gives you just enough to you can get it right or have the door open. It's not your fault if you get it wrong. Yeah, exactly, and like that's kind of like what you're seeing. And I do think that it's like a very difficult economic environment to kind of gauge. Like, you know, after I read this IMF report on on like the the pie shift uh, and the difference between, you know, the acceleration versus uh, transitory uh, and online, you do start thinking like, how much more can you get back? Like what's like, you know, what's Amazon sales going to look like this year? Are they going to miss numbers again? I mean, set aside AWS for now, uh, but like if if what you're seeing coming out of everybody and like before it was like hey we, we can't get enough goods right we went from we can't get enough goods uh, and to stock the shelves to this kind of uh, instantaneous hey the truckers uh, you know like they, they they they've got empty space now and everyone's kind of seeing this happen at the same time so they've all kind of piled on it like from a thinking standpoint that's why you're getting these blog posts I also think at like the same time that was happening, we had Micron, right? And Micron came out and was like, you know, cell phone sales and PC kind of like, you can now find GPUs, for example. I mean, NVIDIA had like the worst week ever last week. It's down like 16, 17%, which is kind of crazy move for, I mean, whatever. It's had crazy moves multiple times uh, over the last six months. But I mean, the, like you went from Micron base to being like, hey, Pricing is great. Everything is fantastic. Uh, and, you know, beating the numbers and raising everything. and But also calling out that there's like a shift, right? Like auto and embedded is going to offset uh, because demand there remains so strong. And data center is going to offset kind of this like, you know, slowing uh, uh, phone market and PC market, right? Then the next day, actually, TSM says the same thing. Right, like they gave an update, and they're like, we're seeing, uh, you know, the phone side, you know, open up some capacity, which is fine because we have all this demand from elsewhere and can offset it. But uh, pointing that out, then immediately you saw a couple analysts downgrade uh, Dell and HP, right? All the timing on HP with Warren Buffett coming in and there being not 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 appreciant call. And then the next day, Barclays kind of piled onto that, I think, with like they downgraded AMD, right? And then last week, NVIDIA had a rough week. So, yeah, like, well, the see, semiconductors in general got hammered last week, I think. Yeah, but like this goes back to, I mean, it's been perfectly reasonable. And we've had this debate about around Apple, right? But like this goes back to like there's areas where, where you upgraded your hardware. Right from a consumer goods standpoint, and you built a home office. You know, you may have bought like a new webcam, you may have bought uh, a new flat screen monitor. Uh, you, you know, you may have gotten new iPhones and new iPads for the kids uh, for you know digital learning. And you you've gone through all this, and like 
that's going to like that messes with the refresh cycles, right? Because you have this kind of pull forward and everything digital hardware because of COVID, right? So that like is going to lead to another demand clear, you know, in, in, in that area where you and like th there's been talk of Apple, by the way, doing kind of a subscription thing. And I, I think that would have to potentially do. We've had this debate with respect to refresh cycles for the iPhone. What do you did the a lot of the story is you mentioned you sort of in Mike Ground's point, you talked about auto and embedded and that, how that'll balance like a lot of the story has been auto is the most obvious place, but has been. We just can't get, we, we're, we're backlogged. We have this strong order backlog, but it goes, you know, to footwear. It goes to all these other industries that they've been talking about. Oh yeah, we've got our order book full through, um, you know, the, the back half of the year, even 2023 in different industries. And I guess I'm just wondering skeptically if now that we're, even though this will hurt my portfolio, but like now that we're seeing a little bit of a demand slowing down utilization in certain parts of the supply chain probably goes down. Like now we actually see how real these sorts of backlogs are, which is to maybe your point about, we see how real these guidances are. You know, if RH or William Sonoma still thinks they're going to grow, like we'll see how much that really holds up as we hit it, hit this stretch where like for all the reasons that we've kind of hit, you know, inflation and the pull forward and all these other micro and macro reasons. Like, I wonder if these things, these crutches we've relied on as far as, oh yeah, the demand, even if there's a slowdown in the new demand, there was still enough of a backlog that it'll work. Cause this is the, in the semiconductor chain, that was a part of the story too, right? It's like, we're still building so many factories that will overbuild at some point, but not, Probably not yet. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, that's that's kind of the challenge here. Uh, and I, I look, I, I think in the semiconductor space, I still like you. You are still capacity constrained. Uh, I think the re the relief you're going to see in some areas is going to feel like uh, uh, you've got more capacity. Because I mean, it had been very kind of just in time built, but like in the near term, it's just it's going to be a softening of demand in, in some of these end markets where you're, you, you've got a hangover. We're essentially in like we, we we've already seen like the, the, the extremes, right? Like the pelotons and the zooms and the docu signs and uh, you know Crocs or whatever, like the most obvious type of things. And now you're kind of getting to this point where. But the stuff that people don't really want to think about as much, which is like, you know, your MacBook or your your phone, right? That like you're you're going to see some demand volatility there. And the Chinese have have complicated this with their with you know, you know their COVID zero policy as well. I mean, it's almost like you wonder whether it's like they're they're taking kind of an anti-inflationary approach with extending these. Uh, the zero COVID. Certainly has that sort of, yeah. It's a draconian right, like, like measure, but. Yeah, I mean, keep like a clamp down here till like, you know, uh, and hope that like, there's obvious, there's evidence that the West is starting to have like these kind of demand rollover things. 
So like if they can make it like another month before they, you know, let things start to normalize there, maybe you get some commodity relief in between. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe two, two other directions just on this part of the conversation. I guess the most obvious thing is like, how are you within all this? Are you just staying away from all of these sort of, because it just, it's so tempting to look at a name that slingshots one way or the other and try to figure out, okay, but if I can do the work and figure out the normalized earning power, I can ignore sentiment is going to swing one way or the other for a while, but that's where the opportunity comes in. Like, are you, how, what are you watching now given this sort of slowdown in demand and everything else that we've talked about? Like, what, what do you, what do so, you, I mean, I really don't, I really, I mean, again, I've been focused on this kind of travel side of things. Uh, and, you know, that's really been more Russia, Ukraine, oil, right? If you're dealing with well, Boeing. Where where do you so what's your like travel because travel sort of went through this own mini like the back half of last year travel really became the big winner and now those things you just mentioned are weighed on it like where where's your stance on travel at the moment I know I, I still think it's fine uh, I think you saw the booking CEO last week saying like people are willing to pay higher prices it's not impacting demand right so you're not there at least yet is the word we would use. Uh, so, I mean, like, that's kind of obvious. Uh, I think they continue to win. People just want to travel right now. So, like, you know, they're going through a bit of an over-earning period. I think that there's, and then you have the Chinese kind of, you know, we're waiting for that zero COVID thing to end there. And potentially this whole Ukraine situation to end. And that ends up being kind of a, another boost for that sector. Right. So like you're like it's very hard like you've already endured kind of this volatility uh i mean look they've been good stocks since the end of last summer compared comparatively to you know unless you went in unless you were buying commodities okay proactively and you took that approach uh which is really more of a a rotation bet but more aggressive which by the way was, was probably a better way to go and i mean i did i mean like I had Mosaic for a while. Some of the shipping stuff, uh, even some Exxon at one point. And some Continental. But if you look at, I, I kind of took this, the laissez-faire, whatever you want to call it, hands-off uh, approach to uh, the way the next year would function i was like not trying to not trying to get rich quick type of mindset right uh and that was kind of the thinking behind boeing and booking you know so like when you're when you fast forward six months and like i mean boeing's actually been underperforming lately it, it manages to catch bad news uh every other week you know one day a non-max plane crashes and then the next day uh uh, one of their freight planes splits in half. <laughs> it's, it's almost been surreal. But, uh, and then that documentary came out, although, I mean, most of the stuff is all well known and it's part of, part of, it's part of the nature of their business. But yeah, you're taking a view that these things will re-rate 
worked over time gradually. Not necessarily uh, 180 degrees. It's not like, you know, when the Pfizer announces the vaccine, right? So it kind of set you up for that. And like, there's, I don't see a reason to move off of that. I don't see a reason in some of the infrastructure stuff, the networking space, although some of them have gotten more expensive because uh, they performed. You get this whole like relative performance thing where once they really start, there's the period where you're like, all right, like these are more attractive. If you know, Shopify is 1500 and sees 400 and people are trading upstart and all this other stuff. But once those things fall 70%, right. Uh, and your name adds on 15%, like you do start, you know, to be a little bit more attuned to the relative performance and whether or not these like factor rotations are going to nick you again. Uh, which we've seen multiple times, but I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's a safe place to be in 2022. If you're thinking with that horizon, right? Like there's an argument that you should not be thinking with that horizon and you should be thinking several years ahead, uh, and be willing to step into you know, you know, we saw it now just recently, like with, with you know, Elon's stake in Twitter, right? Like Twitter got cheap enough. I would have told you that if Twitter was going to go back to, you know, over 50 in a blink of an eye, uh, you'd have a bit more of a resilient bid in the market, right? It's it, like, it's, it's one of those Meaning things. Meaning like if, if for it, if the move, and I was, we were going to get to him too, but the move there was out of line with the market and thus kind of yeah the, i mean did, it, it it didn't get look on an absolute level it doesn't look crazy expensive right i mean it's still you know seven eight times uh last year's revenue uh not not, not unheard of but like when facebook is trading where it's trading and uh pinterest and snapchat and so many other names and you can buy, uh, you know, software companies from below five times sales. Uh, it's uh, it's a bit of a different ball game than it was before. But if you're an owner and you're like, hey, I think you know, and this thing can get to a hundred dollars over the next several years, right? Like, I just want to own the asset. Uh, you're like, there was no reason for you to do anything other than sit tight and wait because execution has, in my opinion, been fine, even though Elon is now (laughs) stirring the pot. But when it moves from 35 to 55, I mean, I sold half, right? You know, I got out the second day uh, and I probably should have sold the whole thing. Okay. But like, you know, he adds an element of like, you don't want to sell the whole thing because you start thinking like everybody else and can he turn this into something that's divorced from, from not even a meme, but divorced from reality. I mean, a meme would be just a whole different universe, but yeah. Where people are just going to trade it. Uh, uh, It becomes just like, you know, trading sardine uh, tied to his activity. Right. I mean, you just can't really think from, from an investing standpoint like that. You can definitely think of it from a trader. Okay. And if that's your thesis, uh, you know, highlight it. And, and 
remember when it doesn't work out to be like, <laughs> is, uh, you know, that like, if you're, if you're on some investment committee and like you highlight that, they're just going to be like, okay, uh, well then like, what is your risk management? Right. Like, since you don't have any fundamental argument to back it up from here, uh, if you're, you know, longer at 60 or 55 and, uh, it drops right back to 35, right? Like if you stepped in here and be like, Hey, it's, it's, it's 55. I didn't go to 75 with him. Right. That's something where you're like, well, yeah, if it falls 10, 15%, like you can, you have to sell. Because there, there, there is no valuation support. So, yeah, I mean, like that's, you know, we're rambling a bit here. So, but, yeah, just to, we'll go back. I, I want to talk about Twitter in a second, but just so when you to go back to the question about like sort of how you look at the market, but it sounds to me like by talking about looking at the travel sector, it sounds like you're sort of staying. You're just not mixing it up with these places where there's where there's not a clear secular or rebound trajectory is that a fair sort yeah, of way to- I, so like do i want to buy target rh home depot well starbucks i mean i've looked at all these names right and my conclusion with all of them is uh they're cheaper but like i think that this it's a complicated 2022 like they haven't gotten cheap enough uh, you know, where, where like you have that kind of margin of safety to be like, okay, these things are oversold. Uh, this consumer cliff will be less bad than expected. And uh, I like all these brands as compounders for a very long time, right? And I don't think you're at that point here. Like you, you, you've had a fantastic run in some of these names uh, for several years. And when you change the valuations of stocks like Home Depot uh, and Target uh, in such short time periods, like you can set yourself up for failure, right? So I would just prefer more certainty uh, in the economy and kind of like some sort of visibility on like what COVID is or them like falling another 25%. Where you then get that margin that you're looking yeah, for. Where you get you like where you're more comfortable as an owner. So otherwise I understand what I'm dealing with if I'm long mowing at like a hundred billion market cap. I mean, you know, there's they had they had to take on some debt on the balance sheet during COVID. Interest rates are going up, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, headaches that they've been dealing with. I understand what I'm dealing with with booking, and that was like, you know, I've got valuation support on my side, right? And I've got like I have this comfort that I'm in an I'm in an over earn type of environment for those businesses uh, for 2022. Versus, I look at Starbucks now. Schultz is back, and you know, there's got these like all the debates around wages, and uh, you know, like they're raising pricing, and uh, it's there's a lot of moving parts. You've introduced a, a lot more volatility. Otherwise, like this is like where I typically would want to like, I like that name a lot. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, use the product uh, consistently. And like, I'm, I know I'm spending more money there. I've been buying more food from them, right? So I know my average check size has gone up pretty steadily. Uh, 
but like it's hard to get a handle like i think all these names it's like you kind of want like a little bit of a coast is clear sign that you know things aren't going to be messier for the rest of the year and i mean like given that point i would like to think that you would have performed well enough in in this rotation trade to you know take some profits from there and like you know uh, redeploy them well and it's it's interesting because there have been i mean within all this sort of choppiness like the initial I, i'm just thinking with target for example it's one that i've done a little bit of work on and was had a buy order open at like 180 ish or 190 and then the day it of course fell through that was one of the first days of the war and i just probably like many people i was not comfortable with open buy orders that day and then you know it's bounced back and so it's like there have there are going to be opportunities where that 25% haircut or that more extreme situation comes in but you have to sort of be ready for it because it usually comes with a reason of some sort like nothing nothing just happens really i mean targets like a poster child for this conundrum right like this is a stock that i was gonzo on in 2019 yeah, i remember uh, that yeah yeah, at seventy dollars, right? And I mean, it was a home run trade that summer. Uh, once it finally re-rated, I, I, I was obsessed with how it traded where it did relative to Walmart for forever. I was obsessed with how the sell side was just constantly hating on it. Uh, and it was one of those biases where you're spending more money there, and everybody wants to shop there. And it's like you know, you see kids, it's replaced Toys R Us for them. I want to go to Target. I want to go to Target, right? And it re-rates and then the pandemic comes along and you know it goes from 100 and like 30 which is like and you thought maybe it could be worth 150 to like 300 you know so like are you going to get super excited about it trading you know slightly over 200 this is this isn't a business that was invented yesterday right yeah that's what's been and there's a lot yeah it's like uh and, and they typify where we started with as far as the blurring of e-commerce and real commerce and all the different mix shifts. So yeah, it's a good, it's a good example of the challenges. Um, so let's go, let's maybe go back to Twitter for a second. What's your take on Mr. Musk and his, the newest board member for Twitter and their biggest shareholder. And he, He's, I haven't been on Twitter all that much this weekend. We're recording this Sunday afternoon, he's but been, he's been going crazy. You, see his Michael, you didn't see his Michael Burry tweet. I saw. I I caught up on. Mo, I think so. I saw he has asked if the Twitter office should be converted into a homeless shelter. He has said that Twitter Blue should get you. He's made a lot of product suggestions for Twitter Blue. He Michael Burry lost his checkmark for whatever reason and. Elon promised it back, even though he taunted him about shorting Tesla. Um, what's your take? What's your take on what's uh, what's going on there? I mean, he's Elon. Well, there's not much else to say, right? Uh, we've speculated about why in the past uh, for something that he uses so much, but yeah, and like 
it's been unclear whether him and Jack are friends, right? Versus like, you know, professional acquaintances, mutual respect, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but you've like, you wondered why like he didn't own a little bit, but then again, he hasn't like, he doesn't own things just randomly uh, unless he's really interested in them, right? He doesn't so, have a diversified like, portfolio yeah, for the long you know, term. Got, yeah, he's got, exactly. He's got Tesla and, and SpaceX and like, that's what he's doing. And then there's things like where, you know, he sticks some Bitcoin on the balance sheet or uh, you know, he messes with Doji or Shiba or whatever from, cause like, that's what's like, he's entertained by. Right? <laughs> and like, he believes that the, I mean, I think there's also a marketing angle there for him. But, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you look at Twitter, I mean, he started out and like, I replied to some of his tweets when he was like, you know, should we, does Twitter need a replacement? So, I mean, he's fucking around. I mean, he was buying the stock, you know, a, a month and a half before he tweeted that, <laughs> you know? So he's definitely not thinking Twitter can be replaced. Uh, he was definitely buying the stock steadily, you know, for from literally from, from the end of January. And uh, he's, he wants to make some changes. That seems to be pretty evident. Well, what's funny is the tone that he takes, you know, some, I think it was Modest Proposal who made the joke about opening a starter position and then doing a little bit of work on one of his tweets. And it's, there's like a sensation. And I think this is, I'm not the biggest, I'm not a Musk fan. I'll say that outright. So my bias is in there, but like, there's this sort of, on the one hand, this sort of discovery of things that have seemed self-evident in the product forever, as if he's discovering it for the first time. But on the other hand, when you have 9% of the company and you have the track record and the weight that somebody like he does, both in terms of his following and just his reputation, like maybe, I don't know, maybe Twitter needs a little bit of chaos and of, or not even chaos of somebody just throwing stuff around until things happen. Like that, I guess that's the argument you would make for how this benefits the company functionally and not just as a attraction to an investor base that he's going to add a, an urgency that, yeah, you, you mentioned they're, they're operating, you know, they, they rolled out space is really successfully. They've rolled out, there's been improvement, but maybe not that sort of hair on fire energy. Yeah, I mean, I think overall people are kind of happy with his presence. That's the sense I'm getting. People meaning investors at large, or do you meaning? Yeah, just yeah. overall, like investors are, they seem to uh, view him as useful, useful agitation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think investors probably on the whole are po positive. It's unclear how either Twitter employees or Twitter executives feel about this and, you know. Well, I mean, Parag retweeted him initially, but I mean, like the, the stance he's taken definitely can't be, looking at it from their standpoint, uh, he's uh, more likely to be a, a headache than not. Yeah, you have to, it's like, I'm just thinking, I'm just imagining going through, you have to have a real, 
there's a way, even if you don't agree with him, or even if you find that a headache, there's a way to like take that and spin it positively and like feel, you know, here's energy and here's ideas and sure, we'll prioritize some and you kind of get some, but yeah, it's not easy to sort of take, unless you're full wholeheartedly on board with that sort of thing. It's a, it can be a bear to deal with. It's like, what, what can he, like, what, what can he really do to move the needle? Like he's definitely criticized advertising. Uh, I think he wants to bring some sort of clarity to what is acceptable speech on the, like what gets you in trouble. Right. Like, I think that's been the, that's been the, that's been the struggle for people with Twitter. I mean, that, that, I don't even say the struggle. That's been their biggest complaint. Right. Well, I would say I'll, I'll, like, I'll, there's, there's like the threshold between what gets you in trouble. Yeah. There's what gets you in trouble from the perspective of the free speech, et cetera, perspective and from the toxicity, like this is a madhouse perspective. So both sides, I think of that frustration. Yeah. I mean, like that's, that's where, that's where people want uh, visibility. And like he seems to be taking it in that direction. Beyond that, like, and look, if he if that's all he accomplishes, uh, that's great, right? I mean, I don't know why at this juncture, and, and like maybe I've just developed some sort of bias around it. Like they haven't, uh, you know, really addressed this topic clearly. Like what? Like what gets you into Twitter jail? Like, how do you lose your blue check mark with Michael Burry, right? Like, these are the things. <laughs> these are the things that seem yeah, to... It's opaque. Yeah, it's opaque. And it's like, it's definitely the, the area of most criticism for them. So, like, just fucking deal with it already, <laughs> right? Like, can we just get an answer? And like that seems to be where he's taking that. Well, and I think because again, what's interesting about Twitter from the like, there is a little bit. I think the positive story is still sort of a feeling of improvement, right? Of marginal. Hey, they they impressed us with spaces, and they really did a nice job there. Or hey, they finally got to a subscription. Or hey, they the ad loads getting a little better and more precise, and so on. But it's still this sort of a lot of people. Edit button is the one that, or whatever the edit option is, the one that he's he's yammering on, as it were. Um, but there's like a lot of things that, because Twitter has such a vocal and large audience of people, just say like, yeah, why isn't why is it so hard to get a check mark? Why is it so hard to solve the scam accounts? And I think an organization like Twitter probably, you know, back when. We talked about it. We've talked about it a few times the the culture there, like the uh, the legacy debt that had to be overcome. And there's probably there in their product processes too. Uh, not to criticize anything, but I just wonder if that's like having somebody like this as a jackhammer just chiseling through in the different departments with, well, why don't we just do this? It may end up sort of clearing away a lot of just like setting aside the free speech, but just these sort of long-standing things of, well, why don't we do that? Why, 
why has it taken us so long to improve search and direct messages or whatever? Yeah, it, it does. Like, does he bring a new element here? Like, is there going to be more people interested in working there? Does he catalyze something? I, that's where I, I really wonder because beyond that, like, is is he actually going to be able to to visibly change the culture as an external shareholder? I mean, I don't know if this is what Parag signed up for, uh, but I mean, Elon's agreed not to go over fifteen percent for his board seat. So, and that's with allies. So, like. I think what you're going to see here is he's going to push for them to clean up some of this, like, like get, just drive it directionally based on what he wants. And what he wants, he's essentially crowdsourcing from people who interact with him, right? So, like, a, a guy like Michael Burry gets his blue check mark back, and they come up with, like, a, like, why haven't they had a clear policy on these things? Right. I mean, there's it's it, the only sensible explanation is that they have advertisers who are sensitive to certain things and they don't want to spell out what exactly gets you into certain trouble or whether you want to call platform help. But I mean, the areas he are he are focused he's he's focused on seem to be areas where you'd get uh, like what what's the word mm, a lot more transparency. I don't see how that's really a bad thing, right? Now, is it going to add that much value to the stock? A hundred million people are not signing up to Twitter Blue, no matter what Elon's doing. Right. Yeah, I was doing that quick math as thinking about his essentially all subscription push. It's like, hmm. I don't yeah, know. So like, you know, and now Galloway's back for the same thing. And like Galloway's actually taking an approach, which is something that I'd raised a couple of years ago, uh, which is to charge based on followers. So like essentially it's paid media promote, you know, like if you've actually got 50,000 people on the, this is very valuable to you. Like, we're going to charge you, you know, enterprise level <laughs> for uh, for your distribution. So you keep it free for you know entertaining for everybody else, but you essentially open the door for uh, incremental revenue, and not just like I mean, potentially notable revenue for the people who built huge followings. And it's just been free spend for them. Like a Donald Trump, right? Like you get to that point, it's so valuable to you, you're willing to pay millions of dollars a year for it, probably. I mean, if you have a hundred million followers, like why not? You wouldn't pay, you wouldn't pay a million dollars if you're someone like him to reach that audience and say, well, you're gonna create much more I mean, it just becomes a return thing, right? What more? What what can you drive out of it? Yeah, it's. I mean, I can understand. Some people will hear that and say, like, "But you're punishing the people who are essentially successful on, or not, but charging the people who are successful." But yeah, there is something of if you. Like that's you figure out how to do that in a way that incentivizes people to add value to Twitter 
because then they can reap value. Like that's the whole thing with the whole creator economy too, if you get that right, where it becomes, how do you make it so it's a more powerful platform for people to monetize? I mean, just today on Twitter, I noticed a space from some like writer's guild or something about how to monetize your Twitter account. And like, that's a lot of people are interested in that. And if you provide the tools and the visibility, the visibility is ultimately the biggest thing, then it's it seems like it would be more organic to the business than a lot of other ways to monetize. Yeah. But he has definitely made this uh you know a, a challenge for security analysis, right? Because you're the to go back to that point you had said it's sort of got out of line with the market with that huge move. And now I guess it's settled back a tiny bit. You're it's basically like really all you can think all you the upside is essentially if somehow there's some Elon associated bonus, but otherwise it's pretty much a market sort of proxy at this point. It's not really over or undervalued. Well, I mean, he's, he's, he, well, no, he swung it into temporarily overvalued range. Right. I mean, that was, I'd say over $45, you know, relative to everything else was, was like overvalued as of today. Right. I mean, again, you own a stock like, like a Twitter and you think it can do what it can over the next several years. Like you're thinking, you know, making 20% a year. Right. But like once you stick it into overvalued as of today range, uh, and it gets to 55, right. And like, then, then you have to actually look at what Facebook trades at and what the alternatives and why they trade, where they trade and what's being priced into them. And, you know, we like, you, you, Elon doing what he's doing is not going to drive ridiculous MDA user growth right now. But maybe maybe it helps. I can't see how it hurts. Uh, but I mean, he already has a hundred million followers, right? So beyond really opening up the platform to let's say people who feel slighted by it and we're not using it because of that. I, I just don't think that there's that many of them out there. Like, uh, so like, can he make it a better experience? That's really hard, right? <laughs> you know? And this isn't like, I mean, people want to compare it to Tesla and like SpaceX, you know, satellite internet and Mars and, autonomous driving are still very futuristic, like getting your news in real time uh, on Twitter is not something that's futuristic. So this has really been more about like, how do you improve monetization, right? For most people, like they're happy using the platform. Like they're getting what they want out of it. And like for people who have tens of millions of followers, uh, like, you know, he was tweeting about like Bieber and Taylor Swift not using it. It's like, well, they don't have a reason to use it right now. Right. But it's there for them when they want to promote themselves. <laughs> right. They built it. And like in the time period that they're inactive, like there's nothing for Twitter to do. Right. But like, yes, if you follow in the Galway approach, they should be taxed because they have this, you know, promotion platform that's open to them. 
while they're just sitting around doing nothing. And, uh, you know, make them pay a subscription type fee to maintain an account of that status. So again, that goes back to the monetization and what can he do there? I mean, some people, like I was having this argument with somebody, I just like, look, this is still not, it's, it's still not Instagram, right? Like you're not going there to post family photos or yeah, it's not TikTok. You're not showing off, right? There's this like, people forget this element of these, these platforms have different user behaviors. So I don't see like, I mean, people, I, th I think some people want to rationalize that there's a reason uh, that Elon can cause stocks to trade crazy, but like Tesla revenue quadrupled in the period like the stock inflected, right? I mean, it's no joke. It's on like a hundred billion run rate now. Uh, and I mean, Starlink is impressive. <laughs> it's, it's a leader in what it does, right? I mean, in terms of the, uh, uh, sorry, uh, SpaceX. But like, there's things to get excited about there that are nobody else has been able to do as well as that. And and like, you do have the idea of driverless cars and these things. Like, it does tap into this kind of future. But I mean, it is backed up, right? So I don't necessarily know like why like you would think that all of a sudden. Hey, look how Tesla stock traded. I mean, yeah, Tesla stock did really take off really quickly in a short time period. But like within 12 months, like the performance of the business had backed it up. So the market got it right, so to speak. You know, I and mean, we can debate a long-term impact of that valuation. But like in a very short time period, the market did get it right. I mean, there's a reason people are gonzo. Like, you know, they solved the a production issue and they really scaled quickly. So yeah, the magic around uh, the magic around being able to pull this off. So, so, like I can't even connect the dots, right? It's not even magic. Like how, like what, where you connect this to Twitter? I don't know. Like I just think he can. I think it's good to have him as a shareholder. He's definitely put a floor under things, and uh, like it will be. Uh, He's 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 drawn attention to it, and he's and he's definitely going to bring some accountability. And I mean, look, it's a reminder. He's like he's not going to get into it. He obviously thought the stock was cheap, and it was, right? So, like, it's a strategic asset, and he picked up a good chunk of it at a at a bargain price for him. Like buying the stock, you know, in the low to mid thirties, where it was, you know, where I got interested in at the start of the pandemic, really. Uh, I still think it's a good deal. I mean, I think it's a great deal. I think that like there's very few ways you lose. So, I mean, if you think about the business and you think about the path it's on, th that was a good valuation. And if you think about it, you know, the potential acquirers, and then we've always talked about that. Like he, I think he gets that totally. I mean, it makes it seem like that that's not part of the deal, but like, I think he's definitely very happy with the price he paid to get, you know, a large stake here. And it's a good insurance policy for him as well. Right? Like he lives on this platform. So uh I mean it is it's very it, like it's very key to him. I don't, don't necessarily think they were they would do anything to 
hurt his presence, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, uh, it's like his his speech, his freedom to speak. But I mean, for his business model, it's no joke, right? Like he can't he can't afford to be silenced off of Twitter. He can't afford to from business, and also it seems like personally he wouldn't. Uh, yeah, he's an addict. <laughs> he wouldn't last. Yeah, he is definitely addicted. Looks like when you have three hundred billion dollars, there's not much else to do. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, like he doesn't. He does not want. Like he's just too preoccupied with his doing. He does not want to like get on a boat and and uh, travel the world or something. Yeah, it's either is, uh, very hopeful or very dim that the richest man in the world is still stuck on Twitter all day like the rest of us. Like that either something in there. I mean, these cats have had this history, right? Like, you know, Howard Hughes has a very interesting, uh, you know, background. And a lot of that has been a, has been a function of... Uh, what do you want to call it? Uh, like passion, you know, aviation, mo- making movies, and like the business empire kind of tangentially developed around it. it. Didn't seem to be by design. Yeah, there's that, and there's also the, you know, obviously Bezos has the post. But there's a Hearst, of course, with the newspaper empire but there's a john henry owns the boston globe uh there's a legacy of being benioff benioff but uh time didn't he so it's not unusual for richer folk to take interest in the press one way or the other and that's twitter is in some sense almost a platform play a version of that yeah, I agree. And I, I think that's he there's no mistake that like it, it's the hole in his portfolio is media. So and this is his media platform. Mm-hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to see, yeah, see how our Twitter experience changes over the next three to six months to start, even before setting aside the stock. Well, uh, he's definitely he's definitely made it more fun. <laughs> I, I I will beg to defer on that. I I I think I'm close to muting. I feel like I'm hearing a little bit too much from him. Uh, but no, no. I I mean, I, it makes it more uh, volatile, more more moving. The other risk is he gets bored, right? I mean, like for <laughs> people who get excited about this, is that like. He gets bored, he gets frustrated, who knows? Yeah. So he's made this commitment. He's gonna he's gonna make his noise. Let's see how that how that runs its course. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Good stuff, Akram. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. 
We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Short Man Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.